Uh, welcome back. My name's Dave Ainsworth. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, last week, we began our annual work through the story of God. For those of you who are just joining us, I, I can't see everybody, so I'm not sure if there's some new people. Uh, we'll catch you up uh, to where we are in the story. But first, I just want to take a minute to talk about how we are approaching the Bible this month. Uh, this is maybe new and different to many of you. We often come to the Bible looking for answers, doctrines, methods, rules for living. But at heart, the Bible is a story with characters and settings, heroes and villains, a beginning, middle and end. And this is important to recognize um, because it's true. Um, it's necessary for interpreting and applying the Bible. And also it's um, helpful because humans are built for stories. And so when we come to the Bible as a rule book or uh, a statement of doctrines, it doesn't resonate with us as much as it does when we come to it as a story. And so we want to take time and experience it as a story. Uh, think of a book you've read or a movie you've seen that just really grabbed your mind and your heart so much that it changed you, it shifted you. Uh, think about hearing, uh, just yesterday I was listening to a podcast and at the end of the podcast, this political pundit sort of went into his personal story and it just grabbed me so much more than all of his like talking head uh, uh, comments before. I was just really um, confronted and changed by hearing his story. Um, the Bible is one of humanity's greatest stories. Uh, it is the story. And so for the first five weeks of every year, we walk through the Bible as a story from beginning to end. And if this is your first week, thanks for joining us. Uh, again, our story comes from the Bible. Uh, we have some people in the room who believe that everything in the story is true. And hopefully we also have others who aren't sure, who don't. And that's a good thing. If you're one that doesn't believe or isn't sure, uh, don't feel the need to hide that. As we move into dialogue, uh, feel free to share and talk through what makes the story unbelievable, what makes it hard to receive. Our different backgrounds will add a lot to our time together. We come from different places, but I hope our purpose is the same. We want to grow personally. We want to build relationship with one another. And we want to uh, be spoken to by the Holy Spirit. Uh, feel freedom to challenge the story. I won't try and change your mind. Um, this week, let's hear from some new people. So if you sort of were new to it and just sort of sitting back and listening, um, if you didn't speak last week, we'd love to hear from you and hear how your experience is. Well, let's recap real quick. Um, last week, we started with a scene called Beginnings, uh, when God, the one being who was before all other beings, created first the angels and then the world. He created the angels to worship him and created the world so that he would be worshiped. Uh, the story describes him as holy, meaning that he alone does what is good, right, and perfect. Then, uh, after the beginning story, we moved on to a scene called First Humans. Um, what was God's purpose for humans? It was not just to worship him like the angels, uh, but to also be his image bearers, to rule the world and continue his creative work. Uh, human humanity, according to Genesis uh, 1 and 2, was in his image and according to his likeness. And in the ancient Near East, likeness has to do with sonship and daughterhood. And so humanity was created as sons and daughters of God. And then like 
like our image has to do with representation. Uh, they were applying God's perfect rule to the world. And so those are sort of the twin purposes for humanity, to be God's children and to be God's rulers. Uh, but where did we leave them? Uh, they failed. They didn't want that task. They wanted to be uh, to find purpose, to find identity apart from God, uh, to discover the knowledge of the good of good and evil separate from Him. And so, not only did they fail to obey and worship God, they failed in their one job to protect and prosper the earth. They let Satan um, compromise Eden and compromise them. I wonder. That's just like a, a super quick recap, but. How has this story entered your mind um, this week? Has it, has it, did you call it to mind um, just in your personal life or in light of the national news that we all were glued to um, Wednesday to Saturday? Did it come up for you? I mean, I think like in, in the garden when... Adam and Eve sin, you know, and they immediately are like blaming, you know, blame shifting and sort of like infighting, you know, um, and, and if you've like never heard this story before, you're like in that scene, you kind of think like, oh, like that's not so bad, you know, like I, I guess it's like, it could be worse, but like in a week like this, you, you just look back and see like how that just, um, what began as like a small amount of that just exponentially grows where you're just like, this is totally like the, the results of, of that kind of broken down relationship with God, broken down relationship with somebody else. Um, and just the, like the blame shifting, like the punditry, like the constant barrage of like re- orienting a narrative or reshaping a narrative um so you just see like if you ever doubted whether like what happened in the garden would have enormous implications you just a week like this makes you realize like this is what the fall produced in our world yeah it's pretty shocking and i mean we'll like the rep that was we pick up today like we'll see more evidence of just how immediately um a simple disobedience like broke the world. Well, let's move forward. And um, if something comes up or if you, if you think about it, uh, bring it to bear, you can, you can share in the smaller groups. We're going to move. So immediately after the fall, we have act one, scene four, Cain and Abel. After leaving the garden, Adam and Eve had two sons. The firstborn was named Cain and the second named Abel. When their sons grew up, Cain became a farmer and Abel became a shepherd. At harvest time, people would bring portions of their work called offerings and give them to God as gifts. Cain brought some of his farm produce. In faith, Abel brought the very best lambs from his flock and they offered them to God. When God saw their gifts, he accepted Abel and his offering, but rejected Cain and his offering. This made Cain very angry and upset. Why are you so angry? God asked Cain. Why do you look so discouraged? Won't you be accepted if you do what's right? But if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, waiting to attack and destroy you, and you must bring it under control. 
Soon after that, Cain suggested to his brother Abel, why don't we go out into the field? And while they were walking in the field, Cain attacked and killed his brother. This was the first murder described in the Bible. Later on, God asked Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, Cain replied. Am I supposed to keep track of him wherever he goes? But God said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I am removing you from this land that you've corrupted with your brother's blood. It will no longer produce abundant crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be homeless, a fugitive who wanders from place to place. Cain replied to God, this punishment is more than I can handle. You have removed me from my home and from my presence and from your presence. You have made me a fugitive. All who see me will try to kill me. God replied, no, they will not kill you. Anyone who tries to harm you will receive seven times your punishment. And then God put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to attack him. Cain left God's presence and traveled to the land east of the garden where he would start a family of his own. We're going to move in. So so this morning we'll have four shorter dialogues. And so we're going to split into groups right now to discuss this story. So Georgia, if you can send us to our spaces. As we think about this story, um, what was the difference between Cain and Abel? I guess one of the big differences is like, uh, (coughs) Abel was willing to give up like the very best of what he had. And Cain just gave some of what he had. So Mm -hmm. instead of prioritizing like what was the best um, just like the selflessness of giving that best, he just chose what he had. Yeah. Yeah, the story said that Cain gave some and Abel gave the very best. Um, what, and so then how did God respond to that initially, to the difference between Cain and Abel? What did he say? He accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. He made it clear that he was frustrated. Yeah, and then, and how do you, like, imagine God's voice, like, speaking to Cain? Like, what exactly did he say to Cain to explain himself, God? I can't remember exactly what he said from the text, but I imagine, I mean, I always imagine God's voice in like a very parental way of like trying to be loving but sort of the way I would say Keen, oh but buddy that's not what we talked about that's yeah. not what I asked of you so I understand you're frustrated but that's not what was asked for you to bring and it's interesting that Cain is super dejected by that and he becomes angry with God he doesn't respond to his um, rebuke in a positive way. It like it truly shows his heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says like, "Won't you be accepted if you do what's right?" Like, hey, haven't we talked about this? You know, we don't see that background, but in the comment, it really implies that this is the first time that I've really thought that part of Cain, like Cain, wanted to be accepted by God. Like that was like I never really thought about him. Is it, he wasn't just like I don't care. Because obviously, if he didn't care, he wouldn't kill his brother. Like, clearly, he cared deeply. Um, But what was, 
wrong with his caring, I guess. What what went wrong? Instead of joining in and celebrating his brother finding the prophetic way of the sacrifice and knowing more so into God's future, uh, he kind of rejected it and uh, kind of damned himself and his one. Yeah. Yeah, he... That's, he didn't mm-hmm. yeah he didn't respond to god's because god said man won't you be accepted if you do what's right but then god even warned him like be careful like he sort of saw in his heart the like seed of murder happening um so almost like the prodigal son's older brother-ish yeah yeah it, it has well, and, and i thought it was interesting too cain is the older brother um you know, he, he, he's the one that sort of should be leading, should be like, um, teaching Abel, um, but he kills him. Why couldn't God ignore what Cain had done? What's the story say that God heard? Repeat that. Like what, what did, how did God, what did God, how did God know that Abel had been killed? Oh, the blood from the ground. He said he heard the blood. Why does your blood cry to me from the ground? Yeah. But he already knew. He's just, God's uh, just really a, he gives us every chance to come up with every story we can because he really wants to hear his <laughs> children's stories. You know, and it really divulges a lot, you know. That is exactly That's true. That's what I do with tennis. I wait to hit, let them tell me their stories. But people tell you a lot more in between the lines of their whole sentence line than anything. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, last week, I mean, that's how God responded to Adam and Eve was he asked a question. And then here he responds to Cain asking a question, sort of inviting, inviting repentance, like, in, but then mostly exposing like Cain's like, uh, true heart. What, um, from someone else, like, what do you, what, how do you feel about that phrase? Like blood cries out from the ground. Like, what do you think that means? for today um that every one of our sufferings are not going to go unaccounted for that the uh people should be aware god loves his children and he's letting the wheat and the tares grow to its full right now because he wants people to show not just to him but to each other who we are you know he could point us out but then we're saying god could be in rough but when we see as we're seeing we won't have to ask him why he does what he'll be doing. I thought uh, to be true. Yeah. Um, I think uh, I just I agree with what's been said. I also like that that I think maybe God was asking, or you know, from my understanding, he's really like he's powerful and present everywhere, so he kind of knows what's happening already, hmm. and he already created us in his image. So I, I I also think it's part of his character to be compassionate, and so he. He asks us and gives us an opportunity. But I think given his power and his knowledge, like when he heard uh, Abel's blood and like he found out or felt his murder, I think that's why, um, along with what David saying, he was like trying to give Cain the opportunity to give his side of the story, to try to understand. But it's it's impossible to hide like such hurt, you know, like I think one of the deepest hurts that maybe God felt is, you know, uh, like to a brother killing his brother and like the mm. hurt and grief that comes from killing someone that like that's also part of his family and his creation. Yeah. 
yeah, I think a lot of times we were so used to the Cain and Abel story, to, but to like really think like that rarely happens that a that somebody kills their own brother. Like it's just like not a common, you know, you kill a stranger. Like there's people that you can write off, but then to like kill your own brother is a really significant um, exposure. Um, yeah, and then that. Cain, like Eve and Adam, like doesn't feel, doesn't ultimately feel sorry. Like he expresses like no remorse. Like maybe he feels it, but he never shares it. Um, he's like really responds for himself. What, um, what punishment did Cain deserve and what did he get? Um, he deserved uh, death. Um, cause blood was literally on his hands. Um, and he got a lot of mercy, grace. Um, he actually even, like, the way the story goes, like, God says that whatever someone tries to do to you, like, sevenfold will be done to them, which is kind of like a weird protection yeah. thing. It's, like, over and beyond what you would... It's not even just a pass. It's, like, a pass, and here's, like, some special benefit specifically for you. So, I mean... It's, Kind of, kind of some extraordinary uh, grace, I think, in this case. Yeah. Yeah, he... Um, even though, yeah, he doesn't express any remorse, like, he... We never... He's not sad. He doesn't say sorry in any capacity that we see. And yet God, like, still extends a, a level of mercy to him. Um, which as the story goes, as the text goes, like, like really allows for Cain to like, to, to like spread more like sort of anti-God culture, like throughout the world. But, um, but it's still remarkable that God still is like withholding, um, justice in many ways. Um, and so, like, I guess, like, given these things, like, what do we learn about God in this story? And then what do we learn about humanity coming just off of creation and fall? And now this, um, what do we learn at this point? So compassionate and ultra-patient. And he goes farther into the darker alleys than any of us or pastors or people will go into the most scariest places where nobody has because he cares about those as like I heard it said one time who do you, which apostle did Christ love the most and I believe I heard he put most compassion into Judas because mm-hmm. he knew Judas's end and he pushed and pushed to try to change it more than any of them the other ones he knew were going to be captured but it seems like he goes more so and tries even more so as Cain as Judas to try to at the very end save him or their seed or you know he sees farther and so he cares more we should all try to look farther yeah I I think there is a a sense where like even in God asking the question as Brando was saying and like and as you're articulating that God is like really revealing like how like firm the grip of sin is like how tightly it grips onto people and in judas is the same way where you're just thinking you're just shocked that judas could do that 
and Kane, um, and even on Exposed, like, won't say sorry. Moving forward to the next story. So Act 1, Scene 5, The Flood. The number of humans on the earth grew rapidly. Not only did rebellion spread from Adam and Eve to their sons, it spread from generation to generation. Even though humans were created in God's image, each person chose to disobey God's ways. Uh, Humans were completely out of control, acting out in selfishness and violence all the time. When God saw that the people's hearts and minds were filled with evil day and night, his heart was broken. So God decided to start over, saying, I will completely wipe out the human race that I've created. I am sorry that I ever made them. But there was one man named Noah who found grace with God. Noah had a close relationship with God and was the only blameless man living on earth at the time. So God said to Noah, I have decided to cover the earth with a flood, destroying everything alive, but I will give you a plan to keep you safe. God told Noah to build a large boat called an ark, giving him specific instructions about how big to make it and what it should look like. God said to him, make an ark from wood and seal it with tar inside and out, then build many decks and stalls for animals inside of it. I promise to keep you safe in this ark. A pair of every kind of animal, a male and female, will come to you to be kept alive. You will also bring seven pairs of animals that I approved for you to eat and sacrifice. And remember, take enough food for your family and for all the animals. So Noah did everything exactly as he was told. Just as God had said, the floods came. Water burst from the earth and rain poured from the sky. When the waters came, Noah and his family and all of the animals boarded the ark. As the waters rose, the boat floated safely on the surface. The flood covered even the tallest mountains and all living creatures on the earth were destroyed except for those on the ark. After 40 days, the rain stopped. Many months passed as the water slowly began to dry up. For weeks, Noah sent out a dove to see if it could find dry land. Finally, the dove returned with an olive leaf in its mouth. Noah sent the dove out again, and when it didn't come back, he knew it was safe to return to land. As soon as Noah came off of the ark, he built an altar, selected pure animals from every approved species, and sacrificed them to God as a symbol of thankfulness and worship. God was pleased with Noah's sacrifice and said, I promise to never again destroy all living things with the flood, even though people's thoughts and actions are bent toward evil from the time they're children. As a symbol of my promise, I will hang a rainbow in the clouds. When I see the rainbow, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. Then God told Noah and his sons, I have put all animals under your control. You can use them for food, but you must never eat animals that still have their lifeblood in them. Life is in the blood, and all life belongs to me. Those who murder must be punished by death. God blessed Noah and his sons, telling them to have many children and once again fill the earth with people. Okay, so why did God flood the earth and... Do you think he had sufficient reason for doing this? This is a hard story. You know, I've been doing a lot of extracurricular studies that's been shunned away from our Baptist churches, uh, like the Book of Enoch, and I just Mm. started the Apocrypha. Yeah. Uh, And my whole life of King James Bible churches from Southern California to here, they've all shunned away. 
but I, I'm seeing in simple Christianity, we're given two, two tennis shoes to go out into battle. Mm. I'm seeing the leather and the steel on our shoes in these books. It really explains really fully about when the sons of daughter, when the sons of God got with the daughters of uh, men, and they created these evil giants, Nephilim. Yeah. The Vikings call them, you know, those giants too. Whatever. They all got the same wars of the things. And the world was really corrupted with evil, evil blood. And God needed to really bend it back down to a, a you know, because of bad blood. It kind of influences. Though we're all free-willed, bad blood or worse blood will influence you to bad things and make things more harder. Mm. And, uh, you know, but he redid the line spiritual blood into a more better chance with Noah. But there was a lot of... Uh, you know, there was evil and there was violence in the whole world. Every, you know, it was a man would have exterminated himself and there would have been no chance spiritually and then physically. Yeah, that that's a really like, I mean, it's a confusing story in, in Genesis six, but um, you like tell it, you, you tell it well. Um, yeah, to think how God would describe, and if we're just going to take God at his word, that he described that the thoughts of man were evil continually all the time. And um, I've just always wondered, like, I don't, I've never experienced that before. Like, um, where, like, that's, that, I'm curious, like, what it was like. Like, it, you know, was it, such like was it the same as today or was it like exceptionally terrible and there you know places that are exceptionally terrible uh, but even so like what was some other people like how do you feel about this story spiritually a lot like today physically there was giants that walked the world <laughs> giants yeah across the world so the difference is just the the limitate the physical limitations um yeah. okay But, yeah, so spiritual limitations. Yeah. You have more spiritual prosperity and chances. Tofei, you're going to say something? Um, yeah, I guess I'm... I don't really know where I stand on this, but I feel like today, like, people are very angry, and, like, even just over the last year, like, the story I got last year is very different than the story I got this year when it comes to things like the flood. Like, a lot of people are angry. We're seeing, like, a lot of like mess up stuff in our world and it's like how many of us would be like yeah god should uh like reset like there's some people i wish were just like not like contributing to like the the mess of this world um that like there could be a better world if like these 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 people were the people that were on the on the planet um i mean i think that is like a interesting line of thought because like the next question is about Noah and their family and it's like blameless people. And so like, if we were going to entertain the idea that like, oh, maybe there should be like some sort of reset, like also none of us qualify to like live in this world as well. Um, so I feel like it's, it's super interesting to read this this year and think like, oh man, like it would be great if there was some fix, but like, I don't know what that fix would be. And also I'm not blameless. So I'm probably part of the problem to some extent as well. Yeah. Yeah, it is a different experience. And then I think even, like, you know, if we think about, 
like, oh man, God seems kind of harsh, but like, isn't everybody is pretty judgmental in these days. Like people want a reset, you know, like that's what revolution is. Like if we could just start over, if we could burn it all down and start over, wouldn't that be better? And so we sort of like signal with that, our agreement with God's impulse in the flood to wash the world clean. Um, um, I kind of always thought it was interesting too with the flood, like kind of what Tofi was saying about how like for there to be a reset, <laughs> it's only been like 10 generations mm-hmm. and God's ready to like destroy everything. So like it gives you kind of a window into the modern world, like how much more time and opportunity have we had to like destroy God's good creation and ourselves and that he's still withholding. Yeah. Yeah. And what keeps God from doing it again in the story? In this story? Yeah. Like when I read the story, like after the flood, it sort of explained like, why is God not going to destroy the earth again? He's inviting his people to be even to be his people again, and uh, we're right here, and he's going to bring us through to his new land. And right now, we're just under work. He's working on indivi- every individual. When this little bump in the door, this door of horribleness that comes through on the other side is an eternal, beautiful side. Well, right now he's finding a people that he's always wanted. He's mm-hmm. Lost ten tribes. Well, in the in the. In the story, the the solution is that God makes a promise. Like that's the rainbow. Like he makes a covenant with Noah. And he and he actually explicitly says it's not because humanity has improved. You know, he still says like humans are bent toward evil from childhood. That's what is sort of what he says. But I will not do it. Uh I will not flood the earth again. Um and so you know, as we think about like why he didn't just in 10 generations at Babel say, you know what, I'm, I'm done with this. He's like made a promise to himself that he wouldn't do it again. Um, as we sort of move through this story, like how does, yes, this is where previously in the story have we seen God blessing and telling people to be fruitful and multiply? So where where did we see that last week, and why is it important that he does it again here? So humanity goes on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, in the beginning, he tells Adam and Eve to do so, but then here, you know, Noah could have really Noah and his wife could have been like, you know what, we should not. If if I were Noah and his wife, I would be like, I don't know that we should recreate this. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't really think this should happen again, you know, but they have to be faithful to what the Lord says to carry on humanity. Yeah. That like it. So Noah's sort of like an Adam 2.0 and, and that go ahead. Somebody else. Somebody. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I was just thinking like how, like this blessing and this command, like, is it relevant today as well? Like, I think, there's also um, like a lot of people that I know that are, you know, making decisions not to, not to have children or like not to adopt or whatever because they're like, oh man, the world is such a terrible place. Like, I don't want to bring someone into that. 
Um, and that's obviously just one, one rationale. There are many reasons. Um, but I guess like with that, like, are we in a different place today? Um, and should that be like a reasonable, like rationale, I guess? Yeah. Where, what's the confidence? Like, where's our confidence at when we decide to like grow um, and, and, and even add numbers to humanity? And here you really see that like God's, not only should Noah be confident, but he should be confident because God is confident. God like wants to continue his plan to be fruitful and multiply. And, um, and traditionally like Christian Orthodoxy would say that the Christian marriages should do the same thing. Um, you know, within, if, if possible that they should, um, continue to have, have children and grow and, and not limit that. I think we're in the age of spiritual, uh, uh, multiplying is what we should be concerning on mm. and that sometimes contradicts about physical multiplying remember in the end times it talks about giving, you know basically partying drinking and giving away to marriage they're more concerned on that than the spirituality of their spiritual brothers and getting more of those you know right now it's just, I don't think it is so much a, that I'll take like the gentleman was saying it's to be recognized right now we should concentrate more on making spiritual brothers and family and that contradicts physical families at times mindsets i'm saying yeah paul paul encourages that um for yeah for non-married folk um so how does god feel about humans this is sort of our well both cain and um noah we're seeing god interact with sinful creatures we saw him before interact with perfect creatures how, what is his relationship like with sinful humans? You know what? When somebody's telling that person in the alley about where he overdosed with that needle hmm. in the deep dark of night and everything, there isn't no other Christians. There's no pastors there. There's nobody. There is still him walking into that dirty alley whispering to him, please don't, son. Hmm. Please don't. Don't do that. He is the universe. He reaches through the bad and the good. He moves man at his will, anybody. He's he's trying just as hard with the unsaved as the saved. And he's just as there, aware of all their actions as anything. Everything is under his control. He goes farther. He wishes we would go out into the woods like CJ and Toby would, you know, with us when mm-hmm. we're living in Golden Gate Park and stuff, you know. He wishes more shepherds were like that, going to the deep, dark alleys in the late night to influence, in my opinion. Any other closing thoughts for 15 seconds? We got 15 seconds. Seems uh, as though it shows real uh, God's real absolute love for humanity. You know, like he never pushes humanity to the point of complete annihilation, mm-hmm. but he also shows his justice. Is there any about anything that someone else said um, in your group that really stuck out to you? So, yeah, this is just like a chance to sort of not say, well, I said something really insightful that I want to share with everybody. But is there something that somebody else said that you want the rest of the group to hear and share? Um, I really like Bryn in our group said that, like, 
she really wanted more details in the flood story about what God was going through in lamenting mm-hmm. what had happened to his creation. Like instead we have like a massive amount of details about like the the ark and all how to build the ark and you're kinda of like, Man, can I get a little bit more of that level of detail on why God decides to make this very big decision to mm. wipe out the earth. Mm. Yeah, we're really left in the dark. Um, well, let's move forward. Act two, scene one, the covenant. Um, Noah's descendants forgot about God and how he had spared them in the flood. They made plans to construct a great city out of brick. They said, let's build a monument to ourselves that reaches to the heavens to show how great we are. God saw how the people were gathering together to honor themselves instead of him. At that time, everyone on earth spoke the same language. So God gave people different languages to make it harder for them to join together in rebellion. Then he scattered them all over the earth. Um, A few generations later, God established a relationship and made a special promise to a man named Abram. This promise was called a covenant, representing the deepest of all agreements between two people, God told Abram, I will make you the father of a great nation, famous throughout history. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I will bless the entire earth through your descendants. This was an amazing promise God was making. He was choosing to bless the entire earth through one family. There was just one problem. Abram's wife, Sarai, was unable to have children. So how would the earth be blessed through their descendants? And besides, they were getting old. Abram was about 75 and Sarai was about 65. God told Abram, leave your country and your relatives and go to the land that I will show you. God led Abram and his family to a land called Canaan. There God told Abram, look as far as you can see in every direction. I am giving this land to you and your descendants. This land of Canaan would not be called the prom- would now be called the promised land. Some time passed and Abram and Sarai still did not have a child. Abram asked God, "What good are all of your blessings if I don't even have a son? I am getting old and soon I will have to give my inheritance to one of my servants." God replied to Abram, no, you will have a son who will inherit everything that I have promised you. Then God took Abram out beneath the sky and said, look up into the heavens and count the stars. Your family will be like this, too many to count. And Abram believed what God said, so God called him righteous because of his faith. More years passed and Sarai became impatient uh, with not having a child. She ordered her servant, an Egyptian woman named Hagar, to be a substitute mother for her. Abram agreed with this plan. Hagar became pregnant and gave birth to a boy named Ishmael. But Hagar and Sarai's relationship became strained. During Hagar's pregnancy, she began to despise Sarai. In return, Sarai treated her servant Hagar terribly. Eventually, Hagar and Ishmael were sent away and not allowed to live with Abram's family. When Abram was 99, God appeared to him again, saying, I am the mighty God. Serve me with your entire life and live purely. I will keep covenant with you for many generations to come. I am changing your name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Remember this, I will always be your God and you will always be my people. Then God added, I am also changing your wife's name to Sarah, which means mother of many nations. Very soon she will be blessed with a son, and you are to name his son Isaac. 
Both Abraham and Sarah laughed to themselves in disbelief of God's promise. Abraham wondered, how can I become a father at 100 years old? How can Sarah have a baby when she is almost 90? Sarah thought, how could a worn out woman like me have a baby and my husband is even older than I am? Abraham asked God, would that you pass on your blessing through my son Ishmael? But God said, why did you laugh? Is anything too hard for me? About a year from now, you will have a son. It is through Isaac that I will pass on my blessing, not through your servant's child. Sure enough, a year later, exactly as God said, Sarah gave birth to their only son, Isaac, which means laughter. The birth of Isaac was the beginning of God fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham. God desired for Abraham's descendants, called the Hebrews, to be a new kind of people who would show the world what it means to live in God's ways, which is why the next story is so surprising. Some years later, God tested Abraham. He called out to Abraham, to him, Abraham, yes, I am listening, Abraham replied. God said, I want you to take your son Isaac, whom you love, up to the top of the mountain and offer him as a sacrifice. The next morning, Abraham woke early saddled up his donkey and chopped some wood for the offering. After everything was ready, Abraham and his son Isaac took two of their servants and set out for the mountain. About three days into their journey, they saw the mountain in the distance. Abraham told his servants, stay here. Isaac and I are going up the mountain to worship. Then we will come right back. Abraham took the knife and the fire from the servants, and he replaced the wood for the sacrifice on Isaac's shoulders. As they were walking up the mountain, Isaac became curious and asked, Father, we have the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb we are going to sacrifice? Abraham told him, God himself will provide a lamb. When they arrived at the top of the mountain, they built an altar and placed the wood on it. Then Abraham took the knife and lifted it to kill his son as a sacrifice to God. At that moment, the angel of God shouted to him from from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, I'm listening, he replied. The angel said, put down the knife. Do not hurt your son. It's clear that you trust me because you did not hesitate to give me what you love the most. Then Abraham looked behind him and saw a ram with its horns caught in a bush. He caught the ram and offered it to God in place of his son. Abraham named that place at the top of the mountain, God will provide. Then the angel of God spoke to Abraham again, telling him, God wants to tell you, because you have not refused to give me your son, I will bless you greatly. Your family will multiply into millions, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the beaches. Your descendants will defeat their enemies. The entire earth will be blessed through your family because you chose to obey me. Then Abraham and Isaac went down the mountain, met up with their servants, and returned home. So what was Abraham's, what was the arc of Abraham's relationship with God? Well, it's like Abraham and God were kind of in relationship communicating and making uh, kind of agreements or going back and forth about, you know, how to proceed or what plan to make. And then there were a lot of comments made between the two of them. Yeah, there's a lot. This is the most intimate we see a, a, a relationship between God and people, like in God and a person, where there's like arguments and wrestling that we never saw with Adam and Eve. Um, I guess we saw a little bit with Cain, not really much with Noah. Um, but here there's this really long relationship that we get to witness. 
And what do we sort of learn from the like long, the length of relationship with Abraham? I think this is the first time this has stood out so blatantly to me of the transformation and like comparison between um, Abraham when uh, God tells him that he's going to have a child and that he's going to go on to father all these nations and how um, him and Sarah laugh and are wavering in trust in that versus when he goes to when God asks him to kill his son and how like time and time again he's he says you know we'll be back down from the mountain shortly and um like he never stops to question it or to um to to say that it would be any other way he like there's just such a complete difference in how um how he follows through on what God asks of him and what God tells him is coming for him. Yeah. Yeah. It's really remarkable. And then if you, you know, if we had a longer time and we're telling the more detailed story, you'd have the, the stories about him twice, like pretending that Sarah was his sister, you know, and endangering her. There's like all kinds of like nuances here. Um, What do you think made the difference between early Abraham and later Abraham. How do you explain that change? Um, I think part of it is maybe the seeing the faithfulness of God in providing like in every like milestone event in his life, like a promise for a son in old age and it was like that's just ridiculous and then like oh oh that happened and then like hey um sacrifice your son <sighs> that's ridiculous oh you know god made a way for that not to have to happen yeah uh, but maybe this like recurring theme of god repeatedly showing up Abraham's like oh this guy's like for reals and he's for me and he's for my family and he's like increasingly just involved in a way that's like blessing me and I, I guess eventually the rest of the world so um seeing the faithfulness of god the god character kind of like show up time and, and time again and like make good on the promise like it builds the confidence of like i can trust this person yeah so. yeah and then in this you know next question is about the covenant um and and so God really is the like promise maker. Like he's made a promise to Abraham. What is a like what's a covenant? Like what does that word mean to you? What's the significance of it? Is it not an oath? An oath? Yeah, I think oath is um I think an oath is related. So like an oath is a promise. I think an oath can be about anything. Covenants always are between persons, like, and they're like, and they're relational. So I think that's sort of the sort of difference as opposed to like a contract, which is sort of like, I'll do this if you do this. But like covenant means that like, you are mine and I am yours. Like a marriage covenant, you know, it's like the example we know mostly. Um, you know, I've, the best description I've ever heard of it is it's when two 
people who are not naturally family become like family. And so here you have God and humans who are like very, they're, they're not naturally family. Um, and yet God is, is, is saying, Abraham, you're mine. Like you're my family, you're my people. And that's never going to change. Um, and so he's really consistent and faithful, even when Abraham is not faithful, just consistently like calling him back. Um, at the middle of the story, I guess, God called Abram righteous. Do you remember why, like in the story specifically, what did it say? Abraham did something, and so God called him righteous. That's exactly right. Yep, it just said, because Abraham believed God, trusted God, and God counted it to him as righteous. So, he does that at the beginning of the story, but then we're all talking about like, there's this huge arc where like by the end of the story, Abraham really does come across as righteous man. He's willing to sacrifice his son. Like, what does it mean to you that God calls him righteous at the beginning just for like tiny faith? Um, what do you think it means to be righteous? He just didn't have faith. He acted on it. He took his whole family and moved from the land he lived. It was just like this little voice told me to take all you all and travel the world <laughs> and leave all we know to hardships. Because it was a lot more than just, I believe, he acted on it and changed his whole world into destruction, apparent destruction, with just the invisible voice that said, you'll have blessings of life you'll know. Trust me. Yeah. So we, we're so used to this story we don't, it's hard for us to like put ourselves in that. I mean, really like a comparable is like if you've grown up in the church or like you've been in the church a long time, like what if a voice came to you and told you to like just up and leave and like, and I just had to like move my family to some random place that I'd never been speaking languages that I'd never spoken. It would be really, it's really significant what Abraham did for sure very spiritual you have to be very spiritual to really lean on those little wind-like feeling voices do you think it's it is very significant to believe and like belief results in action but why is why does god call him righteous not because of his action he doesn't say because you've done all these things for me he says like because you believed like he finds it there does that give you hope, pause, encouragement? Encouragement, because the bigger faith, the bigger action you get from it. The bigger he smiles, the more he wants to do. You do believe in me. You just put yourself on a limb for me, and now I'm going to carry you across the bigger branch. I sort of move in the opposite direction where I'm, I'm really encouraged that it's, that it's just belief that, that the small, that I can begin with a small belief in God. Um, and, and the Lord sees that and, and gives me more credit than I do. You know, like I I don't feel like I deserve that much credit. And he's like, no, I'm going to see this faith and I'm going to call it, I'm going to call it righteousness. Um, the test of Abraham 
is pretty big. Um, it's a pretty important story in scripture. What do you think of God's test of Abraham in sacrificing Isaac? Um, do you like that God does that? Do you not like it? How do you feel about it? I really liked it because it showed, I think, I think it was a good test for love and or unconditional love and also just Abraham's faith in God. And I, I think I really like it because the end was also positive, but we yeah. also see the, the same in return from him. Um, and we see God being, you know, loving and giving, not killing his son and in essence rewarding uh, Abraham's faith and love for him. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hard story. It's like, and it's a story that like, I don't, would I pass that story? Like, I, would I pass that test? Like, it can be kind of fearful for me because it's such a big deal, you know? I mean, I have, you know, I have children and we all have people that we, like, love. Could we imagine, like, the per the human being that we love the most and God asks us to sacrifice? Like, how would we react to that? Um, which, of course, he doesn't. But, um, and this is sort of, like, meant to be, like resonant of it sort of creating a story <clears throat> when God does sacrifice his own son. So he like spares Abraham from that, making that sacrifice when he doesn't spare himself from making that sacrifice. Like he gives <clears throat> in faith, like because of his love for us, he gives his own son. Um, you know, when Jesus prays and asks, like, will this cup be passed? Can this cup be passed from me? There's not, he doesn't turn around the garden of Gethsemane and then there's like a little ram, you know, next to it. Like he, God says no. And so that's really shocking. All right. Um, we are moving through. We have one more set of story, one more story and time for discussion. I'm going to give one paragraph here that's going to give you a lot of info over a long time. It's a bridge story. <clears throat> Um, years later, this son, Isaac, had his own son named Jacob. His name was later changed to Israel, meaning struggler with God. The Hebrews would then be called the people of Israel after Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. One of his sons named Joseph ended up living in Egypt. Joseph's story is an interesting story for another time. Uh, he invited his family, though, at the end of the story, to join him to escape a horrible famine that covered all the land. While living in Egypt, the people of Israel grew into a large nation, numbering hundreds of thousands. After Joseph died, the king of Egypt named Pharaoh feared Israel because of their great numbers. He treated them horribly, and there he made them into slaves. Their slavery lasted 400 years. But God promised he would bless his people. Act 2, Scene 2, Exodus and Teaching uh, God's people cried out for deliverance from slavery, and God heard their cries and remembered them. He used a man named Moses to rescue the Israelites from slavery. He sent Moses to warn Pharaoh that terrible things would happen to the Egyptians if they didn't release God's people. Pharaoh was arrogant, though, and didn't listen. So God sent a series of plagues to punish the Egyptians. But these plagues didn't affect the Israelites, most of them. God turned water to blood, filled the nation with frogs, mosquitoes, and flies, killed livestock, covered people and animals with boils, destroyed the land with hail and locusts, and brought great darkness over the land. 
In spite of these horrific events, Pharaoh would not let the Israelites go. God sent one more plague. He would send an angel of death that would take the life of every firstborn person and animal in Egypt, firstborn son. But God provided a way for the firstborn of Israel to be spared. He instructed them to take a firstborn male lamb without defect and sacrifice it to him without breaking any of its bones. Then they were to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of their homes. If the angel of death saw the blood of the lamb on the house, he would pass over and not demand the life of the firstborn son. So the people of Israel did what God told them to do. At midnight, God sent the death angel through Egypt, taking the life of all the firstborn, but passing over the homes that had blood on their doorposts. The Egyptians wept over this tragedy and begged the Israelites to leave, releasing them from slavery. And now Israel, a large nation of over two million people, set out to return to the land God promised to Abraham. But Pharaoh wanted revenge. He sent his armies after Israel to catch them and kill them. When the Israelites approached the Red Sea, they thought they were trapped by the waters and would be caught by the Egyptians. But God split the waters so that the Israelites could cross the river on dry ground. And when Pharaoh's armies tried to cross behind them, God brought a huge wind that blew the water back over them. The Egyptian army was completely wiped out. Two months after leaving Egypt, the Israelites set up camp at the bottom of Mount Sinai. God descended onto the mountain in fire and thick cloud of smoke covered the mountain. God called Moses into his presence on the top of the mountain. There God spoke to him saying, tell my people this. You saw how I carried you on eagle's wings and rescued you from Egypt. Now, if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured people, a kingdom of priests set apart to represent me. When Moses came down the mountain, he told the people what God said. They all agreed, we will do everything that God asks us to do. We promise to follow all the commands. After that, God gave Moses instructions on how the people could return to following his ways and live in freedom, a life lived close to God and under his protection. God himself wrote them on stone tablets. The instructions were called the 10 words. This is what they said. I am your God who rescued you from slavery in Egypt. Put me above everything else. Do not worship other things. Do not misuse or disrespect my name. Remember to set aside the seventh day each week to rest and worship me. Honor your parents. Don't murder or steal or lie. Don't, do not sleep with anyone but your husband or wife. Be faithful. Don't lust after what others have. Be satisfied with what I give you. God gave more instructions called laws to give to Israel. These laws gave specific details about things like how to treat neighbors and enemies, how to handle conflict, what's fair punishment, when to work and rest, when to celebrate and worship, what offerings were acceptable to God. These laws helped Israel know how exactly they were called to be different from the nation of Egypt, the only home they had known, and the nations surrounding the promised land. But the people did not want to live within God's boundaries and rebelled again calling these instructions a new kind of slavery. They even said they would rather go back to Egypt. Because God always does what is good, right, and perfect, he could not overlook their sins, and the ultimate punishment for sin was death. A life must be given to pay for each person's disobedience. How could God not punish Israel? But God loved his people, so he provided a way for them to substitute the life of an innocent animal in place of their own. 
People would bring pure animals to God, asking him to transfer their sins to the helpless animal. The animal was killed and its blood was given in place of the guilty person. Eventually, God would ask his people to build something called a temple, a building where God's presence would dwell among his people and receive their sacrifices. Sacrifices were given for known sins all the time, along with sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise. However, there was one day of the year where a sacrifice was made for all sin, known and unknown. After performing a series of rituals, the priest would enter a special part of the temple called the Holy of Holies behind a curtain that symbolized the separation between God, who always does what is good, right, and perfect, and the sinful world. Here the priest would offer a sacrifice for himself and the people. This system of sacrifice continued for hundreds of years. Sacrifices for sins had to be given day after day, year after year, and God accepted this, but only as a symbol of what was to come. He was preparing a final sacrifice that would pay for the world's sins one and for all, once and for all. Okay, so how could the Israelites avoid the death of their firstborn son? What do they have to do? Uh, they had to make a perfect sacrifice, basically, right? Get the best of the best. Yeah, they had to take a unblemished lamb, right? And then what did they do with what did they do with it? This is in the tenth plague. Yeah, they built the book on the right? Yeah, how was that different from the other the other plagues? Did they have to do anything to avoid the other plagues? Did, did anybody else, did the other plagues affect the Israelites or did it only affect the Egyptians? Does anybody remember the boils and all the rest? I believe it only affected the Egyptians, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so what's sort of the significance here? Like the tenth plague affects everybody. And what is it Yeah, and then it requires something to to avoid it. What do you think is the significance of that? I think maybe uh, God wants us to participate and maybe show up like belief or faith. Yeah, they, it required faith. Uh, like, I mean, I think last year I was, I remember somebody wondering if all the Israelites obeyed. You would think they would because they saw all the plagues and that's, I'll do whatever you think. But there might be, have been some that are like, I don't care because it's, what, two million people. Um and so were there some families that said, no, I won't do that. Um, and then I don't even wonder, like, were there some Egyptian families that saw what was happening and did it? Um, yeah, I think it, it emphasizes how the Israelites and the Egyptians are really, they, they're all sinners. Like, I mean, they, they're all on equal playing field. So it's only God's, like, kindness that, excluded them from the previous and the fact that they were victims, you know, they were the oppressed people. But then at the final sort of judgment, like everybody is given the same instruction and we have the same consequence. What other place in the story have we seen an animal given to cover another person's sin? There's a couple places. Besides the goat sacrifice and all the other ones that are ritualistic with the Jews before Christ. 
Yeah, so even like early, so what's the like, what's the first animal that was killed in the story of the Bible? Abel. God's plan of kingship to so Abel was murdered but then even before that when Adam and Eve sinned um, and they were naked and they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves but then God sacrifices an animal to make clothes for them and so in one sense that was like a sacrifice um, to cover their sin and cover their nakedness and so we see that there um, I think we see it in Isaac where like a ram is given in place of a firstborn son in Isaac. We have, and that's not maybe necessarily associated with sin, but you still have that replacement. Either the firstborn son dies or the ram dies. And so we, we just begin to see across scripture, this like theme of substitute, you know, that like the wages of sin is death, but there is this possibility of substitution, um, that at this point, like you're saying, is like Israel sacrificing, I mean, how many animals? Thousands of animals um, per year, um, every day, um, all day. What, um, if we look, what do you think, this middle question, what do you think God meant to say as he's rescued Israel and he's saying like, you will be a kingdom of priests? What's the like, how do you feel about that phrase? Eastern kings. Kings. And then, but then what? It's kings and priests together. So what do you think is important about those, those two ideas being together? I think maybe he meant that he wanted us to be a nation of goodness. That we would be, you know, a community that I will do or be peace-like and follow or do good. Yeah, he's really bringing, you know, we can, we live in a very divided world where we talk about like the secular over here and then the non-secular religious over here. We sort of separate these two ideas and God is really wanting them to like hold together. His vision for humanity is that they would rule and then they would rule in relationship with him because priest is not just, it's not just about goodness. It's about like a religious and, and faithful relationship with God. So like, that's what's going to be unique about Israel and unique about God's people is that they live in relationship with him. How do you see that in the Ten Commandments? Like that connection of like how you live on earth and then how you relate to God. It's really your kings and priests' rules. One's going to relay how you're going to live on earth. The other one's going to relay how you're going to live with God. Yeah. And they should be living off same book and the same guidelines one's going to be more one's more physical of course and one's more spiritual yeah really if our our pastors should be our generals as samuel samuel god did not change at the time of samuel we just started looking at him different i don't think with the full scope as we should have been doing or else we wouldn't be in this trouble if our pastors were the same they would be like our generals and uh they would be the first ones with the sword as they are with the word. I think here, you, and you see that in the Ten Commandments, where the first table of the Ten Commandments, the first five, like have our first four, have all, all everything to do with my relationship with God. That's how it begins. Um, idolatry, saying God's name in vain, worshiping on the Sabbath. And then it moves from that 
that priestliness to how I relate to other people. Don't murder, don't lie, don't steal. Um, we, and so what does it mean when our sort of countries like don't have any, any like Godward oriented laws? They're just trying to make laws that have to do with, um, not murdering, uh, stealing. But if you don't have one, you can't hold the other. Um, which of the commandments do you feel like is the hardest to keep? Keep the Sabbath holy. Keep the Sabbath holy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, isn't that funny how that is such a hard one? Like you would think we would be, you would think we would receive the Sabbath as a gift, but it is really hard to be faithful to that, um, to rest. Yeah. And interestingly, Exodus talks about the Sabbath being the most important commandment of all of them. Um, yeah, that it's the sign of the covenant uh, is is the Sabbath. Um, and it's interesting that that is one of the hardest to keep, for sure. I think um, the first, the first one, we shall have no other gods before me, like... I think every single second of every day our our hearts are challenged by other things that could be um, placed in, in the throne of God, right? Like, whether it be money or status or um, fill in the blank. Like, I think that's just, like, one thing that um, is really difficult, like, constantly. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, as we're talking about the how difficult these commandments are, I just, like, am again, like, reminded of how fragile we are. Like, you know, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, who who is saved but then fails immediately after. Um, Abraham, you know, with Ishmael, like, like, obedience, like, when it comes to us, if it depends on us, it's so hard for us to maintain that. And then when we get the Ten Commandments, um, which seem like very good and basic beliefs, but like it's so hard for us to hold to them. Um, so much so that God like puts this like elaborate sacrificial system, like because he wants to dwell in the tabernacle, dwell with them. But if they're constantly sinning, you know, it, something has to cover that over um, in order for him to stay there. Um, it's just wild how, how fragile it is apart from God's, like, uh, confidence in himself. You know, like his, his on, on our side, it's fragile um, without God's commitment it would fall apart in a heartbeat. Any other, any, any last thought from the morning? The commandments. One time I was doing a study group up in North Texas and the D, I didn't realize the DA was right there too, but I explained to the group, these 10 commandments, God don't need these commandments to make him feel more godly or better. Every one of these 10 commandments, the more we follow them, the more healthier and enjoyable and exciting mm-hmm. our life is. You know what? 101, you don't go mess with your neighbor's wife. He's not going to come murder you and destroy yours for the name. All right. Thanks again so much for joining us this morning. Um, as I 
did last week just wanting to close with a word of exhortation as I reflect on this. I know a lot of pastors across the United States like quite legitimately like changed their Sunday plans um, to be able to speak directly to the events in Washington this week um, and what it calls for us as Christians. And, and I like wondered and thought about that, like, man, should we, should we shift things over? But we didn't make the change. And I feel like the stories we listened to this morning just speak directly to the um, present moment. Um, they juxtapose the consistent failure of mankind to live according to its ideals, not even God's ideals, but even our own ideals, like a failure to live in light of those with the undying commitment of God to accomplish what he started despite man's failure. Um, he uh, is just pressing on with his vision for humanity. Um, our species is ruined by the terror of sin. Cain murders his own brother for jealousy. He refuses to be sorry. He only feels bad for himself. As I was thinking this morning, I don't really think we've witnessed any human being expressing sorrow for sin in the story thus far. Like I was trying to sort of think, I don't, I don't think anybody has said, I messed up. I'm so sorry, Lord. Like, will you forgive me? But what we do see is God just consistently like providing mercy uh, in light of that. And, and we've seen that on display this week. Very few people are sort of expressing remorse. Um, there's a lot of self-defense, a lot of um, continued anger. Um, how terrible early humanity must have been for God to say that um, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Um, and we wonder how that can be true, but then we consider the week we've had in America. Tofe and our group was talking about like, the story feels very different this year than it did last year after all that we've experienced in 2020. It doesn't feel like it's that far off base. And truly, this conviction is restated in the New Testament in Romans 3 um, when he describes humans. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Um, and we wonder, you know, when we listen to the story of Noah, man, how could God want to destroy humanity and start over? And yet, like, that's the conviction of a lot of people. Just, man, we just need a fresh start. We just need to burn it down. We just need to start over. Um, but at the same time, we learn in these stories that it's not enough to start over. Um, that's what the story of Noah really proves, uh, that clean slates aren't clean if people are still involved. Uh, Noah quickly sins, and he sins in a really similar way to Adam and Eve, where he's in a garden, shamefully naked. Um, Adam 2.0 was not a success. And so what is God going to do? Is he going to just start over again and again and again until we get it right? Um, and in one sense, he does start over with Abraham, but this time there's a big difference between Abraham and Noah. Um, Abraham isn't chosen because he's righteous. In the story of Noah, God commends Noah and explains why he chose Noah. But Abraham's just sort of plucked out of nowhere from a pagan city of Ur. We don't know anything about him. He's just picked. He doesn't qualify for the job as an Adam 3.0. And that explains another shift in the story, too. In God's covenant with Noah, God gives an imperative where he says, be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth. It's a command, a covenant based in a command. But in God's covenant with Abram, he changes his tactic and he makes a promise. He sort of is like, he doesn't front the command, he fronts the promise. And so in Genesis 12, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you so that you fill the earth. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. God just takes charge of the human project. And he decides that he is going to make it happen. In Genesis 15, he puts his own glory on the line and says that if the covenant fails, he will kill himself, not Abraham. And that's what we see going forward. We see God making people fruitful, God making people faithful, even at cost to himself. We cannot save ourselves, and so God has stepped in to both save us, to pay our debt, and to make us become what he wants us to be. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is by grace through faith, And even the faith is not our own doing, it's a gift of God. The good works aren't our own doing, we do them, but God prepares them ahead. Um, He does this with Abraham, Um, he makes him faithful, so that by the end of his life, he's willing to sacrifice Isaac, his son, without much objection. And we just ask ourselves, I think if you read the story, would he have done that if he had given him the son at the beginning? I don't think he would have. Uh, Would Abraham have done that if God had let him make Ishmael his son? I don't think Abraham would have done that, but God orchestrates his life in such a way as to produce faith. Uh, He does that with Israel. He makes them faithful. He proves to them his faithfulness, his grace, his kindness. Um, And so last week, the question we ended with is, man, do you want to be self-made or would you let God make you? Uh, Do you want to create your own image or do you want to discover um, what it means to be created in the image of God to receive his word as truth? Um, And that same question is present this morning, um, except not from the context of Eden, uh, from a perfect place, but the context of a broken world in a desert. Our country is broken. Our bodies are broken, vulnerable to viruses and sadness and violence. And so we ask ourselves, man, will I save myself? Can I save myself or will I let God save me? Will I receive his grace? Will I receive his law, his ways? Um, And, uh, Will I, um, like Abraham, stick with God long enough for him to make me faithful? Um, If salvation is by grace through faith, it begins with the smallest step of faith in Abraham where he just goes. And then it continues to believe where Abraham just takes God at his word. But by the end of the story, Abraham is made faithful where he willingly sacrifices his own son. Um, When Abraham started out, he was a mess. Uh, But he stayed with God and God made him faithful uh, so much that by the end of his life, he was willing to sacrifice his son, believing that God could bring him back to life. Um, And so if you, like me, feel weak in faith now, wonder um, about belief, we hold on. Uh, Hold on, friend. If you stay with Jesus and you hold fast to his word, if you stay with his spirit and his people, uh, God will one day say what to you what he says to Abraham, which is because you have obeyed my voice. Um, he gives Abraham credit for all that he, all that God himself has accomplished. Uh, he'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. 
um, God is holy. Uh, he cannot dwell with anything that is not holy, but he loves us. And so he will make us holy. He will make us righteous. And that's what he does um, in the gospel. Uh, when we are given the righteousness of Christ, if we stay with him, there is no salvation apart from Christ, um, but uh, it is free to all who come. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful for these stories. We're thankful for them as grounding in light of the weeks behind us um, and the weeks ahead, um, that these stories are true um, when it comes to their doctrine of humanity, uh, when we think about what humans are, uh, both the glory that it is to be human, but also the deep brokenness and the entrenchment of sin, um, these stories, man, they are clearly borne out. Their truth is borne out in our experience of the world as we watch the news and as we think about our own hearts. Um, but then we also see in them your perseverance, uh, your faithfulness uh, to yourself and to your people that you will finish the work that you began. And we're so thankful for that. And we just pray that you would help us to stay close to you, to stay close to you like Abraham did, where he held on to you and you made him faithful, um, like some of the Israelites did. Some abandoned you and walked away and returned to pagan ways, but many stayed with you and they were made faithful. Um, Father, would you make that true of us? Uh, we cannot save ourselves. Will you save us? Will you save us? keep us close and keep us clean. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.